Hello and welcome to Let the Bird Fly, a podcast about living freely in a world given back to us. Wade is here with me, Mike, and we are continuing our Winging It series on the thought and life of Martin Luther. Um, We're very far along. We are in the 1540s. Um, Probably what's coming next is a kind of more of a historical uh, session where we're going to go through the 1540s and a little known uh, to the average Lutheran um, meeting at Regensburg. Um, but we thought we'd take one little break before we got back into the uh, going through history year by year, and that is take a look at John Calvin, who is, uh, we could say a contemporary of Martin Luther, but younger than Martin Luther, right? Uh, certainly influenced by Martin Luther. They're going to go uh, in different directions on a lot of different things, but he is for sure a huge um, person when we think about Reformation as a whole, right? The, the, we have many Reformations, English Reformation. We have the Reformation in Germany, um, Swiss Reformers, all that kind of stuff. Um, besides Luther, probably the most influential, at, um, certainly in the English-speaking world, um, would be John Calvin, wouldn't you agree? Um, so uh, he's he's he is uh, worthy of an episode today. He's French, ends up in uh, Switzerland a little bit in Strasbourg, um, is a prolific writer and a systematician, right? So we're going to discuss John Calvin today. Um, do you want to start with his history or his influence or his theology? What would you like to do, Wade? Sure. Uh, I think um, maybe if we can just contextualize and place him uh, where we would, when we talk about uh, Christianity today, right, where would be Calvin's influence? And I think uh, if we think of the early Reformation, we have Luther and Zwingli are going to be the two most important people. Um, Luther and Wittenberg, Zwingli is easy to remember, Z and Z. Zwingli is in Zurich. Um, And these are going to be the two leading voices for reform. Now you're going to have reform elsewhere you're going to have Strasbourg with Bootser and others. You'll have Echolampadius and Basel. Um, Baron will have some reformers. But these will kind of be the two poles of the of the Reformation as it's taking place early on. Um, Zwingli respects Luther, um, but he holds that he didn't necessarily, um, his reform didn't spring from an influence by Luther, although he admitted he had read him. Uh, there's some things that Zwingli's working on before Luther even. <clears throat> and... Um, Zwingli will die early. Um, he'll die in battle. And uh, Bullinger will take over for him in, in Zurich. And this will really provide an, an opportunity. If we're going to place Calvin, Calvin is able to navigate between Zurich, Strasbourg, Basel. He'll be in Geneva. And he'll make uh, overtures towards Wittenberg, but never with a lot of success. Um, Luther is positive about some of Calvin's early writings. Um, I think it's hard to get around that Calvin's institutes are, whether you agree with them or not, are just brilliant, right? He's very, he's able to write very clearly and in a very organized fashion, um, which will influence subsequent theologians. Trained as a lawyer. I mean, you can, yeah. it certainly comes out. Yeah. But where Calvin wants to be um, is a bridge uh, between Zurich and Wittenberg, right? He really sees this as something that should happen and as something that he should have. He thinks he has the ability to help navigate and bridge. Um, and so when we talk about the Reformed today, I've never quite figured out why we do this in um, 
the churches of the former synodical conference, you know, uh, ELS, Wells, LCMS, um, where sometimes people just say Reformed and they mean everyone who's Protestant but not Lutheran. And so you're lumping like Pentecostals with Episcopalians, with Presbyterians. Um, It's a really odd, you've got Calvinists with Arminians. Um, It's an odd thing that we do. When we're talking uh, capital... In our defense, um, you know, there's a string of, of... strict Calvinism or, or classical reformed or Calvinism and Arminianism in just about every Protestant denomination, seminary, sure. church, and I would even say individual Christian. So um, we are very unclear when we say reformed um, because reformed and on the other side in the American context. So so in, in the Reformation, we're talking Zwingli, Luther, Calvin is helpful, um, but in today's context, we would we would talk um, more about um, the two poles being Calvin and Arminianism, uh, named after Jacob Arminian. Now, there's no Arminian church, um, so well, there's probably like one somewhere yeah. at least. And uh, um, and don't don't mix that up with Arminia, the country either. By the way, um, but uh, just very simple simple uh, Reformed is going to be much more about the sovereignty of God. Uh, uh, predestination, total depravity, and and the saving grace of God, where Arminian is going to be, hey, they're going to say, hey, what about human responsibility? And they so flip they, almost all those. So yeah. they're going to be uh, uh, decision theology about the faith of the individual. And um, so when we say reformed and we lump everybody else or evangelical lump everybody else, that is very unhelpful. And we, 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 we should not do that. But then again, in our defense, um, there's not strict lines within the in the greater Protestant church, um, other than saying, okay, this Presbyterian church, this uh, uh, Reformed church has a direct line, especially the Reformed to John Calvin, right? right. So, yeah. Um, and so when we say capital R Reformed, in a historical sense, and we're talking European Reformations, <clears throat> what that really comes to entail is going to be the Swiss Reformations. Um, and so Zurich, Basel, Bern, um, Geneva, uh, and you're not going to have this unity between Lutherans and the reform that Calvin will work towards, but that's definitely where he wants to be. And part of the reason he's able to try to be there is Calvin is really a a second generation reformer in a sense. Um, He's able to step in and he begins working after the work of Luther and Zwingli and others has been clearly established, right? Yeah. And it's already gone through its ups and downs. So his dates are, Calvin's dates, 1509 to 1564, to give you a sense. Right. And so um, Calvin himself is going to be born in France, um, in the Picardy region. Um, he actually would have spoke Picard, which is a, a dialect of French, but uh, right, you would have, it wouldn't have been clear necessarily between uh, um, speakers of both. And he is um, going to get a decent education, uh, he is going to, as Michael mentioned, be trained as a lawyer. Um, there's interesting some history, interesting history with his family, but we won't get lost in it today because I want to navigate his relationship with Luther as we go. Um, but uh, he'll be trained as a lawyer, but at some point he becomes uh, very interested in theology, right? There's probably always an interest there. But he'll become very interested Grew in theology. Grew up in and around the church. His father worked for the church. His father right. wanted him to be... Oh, his, his father's um, going to end up on the outs with the... He punches someone, <laughs> very recall. He want, father wants his boys to 
to be priests, but then kind of changes his mind. And so he decides, Calvin uh, studies to be law and then changes his mind. So there, there's some kind of similarities between Luther and, and his upbringing, not apples and oranges, but, uh, you know, there's, you could both tell that these are, these are people of their time. Yeah. Right. And you're not going to have a big conversion moment for Calvin that he'll talk about, um, Maybe well, it seems that people want to find one for right. him. Right, yeah. yeah, definitely. Um, but not, you know, kind of like a clear one in the 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 story of Luther. I won't say simply the history, but in the story of Luther, you know, the thunderstorm and the and the praying out to um, St. Anne. But Calvin will get a very a fine uh, education. Um, it'll be, his days will be rigorous from early on, right? The schools he goes to, he's waking up early. He's developing habits that would serve him all his life. Um, Calvin was just uh, a workhorse, right? Uh, throughout his life, he rose early, writes like crazy, <clears throat> carrying out all sorts of administrative duties, and his education very much trains him for that. But he doesn't say much about his youth. And um, here, uh, Bruce Gordon's biography of Calvin is just fantastic, if you're ever interested in one. He just wrote a very good biography of Zwingli, too. And he has a great book on the Swiss Reformations. And I'm afraid... My History of the Reformations course is slowly just becoming <laughs> Bruce Gordon books, right? <clears throat> this is the trajectory. But he notes, it was seen as rather distasteful um, to write or share a bunch of autobiographical details about one's youth in the 16th century. Um, the point was just to get through your youth, mm -hmm. right? Um, and so, uh, right, I think Gordon notes or elsewhere others note, it was almost seen as like a effeminate thing to be talking too much about your childhood. Um, you know, there was nothing like we have today where we go, man, your childhood really shapes you and maybe there's trauma from there or, you know, if you want to understand so-and-so, you got to understand his parents. or That that just wasn't wasn't there. Even with Luther, um, we we sometimes hear stories about his childhood, but these came from the table talk right. or in illustrations. This was not like Luther just sat down and was like, let me now tell you the story of my youth. They were... Um, used as illustrations. So we don't know a lot about his youth, but he will be um, educated very well, and he'll be in a France um, that has uh, a growing appreciation amongst royal families and nobility for humanism. Um, and with that growing uh, humanism, you will have some uh, sympathy for or interest in evangelical thought, right? Um, and so we'll have, for instance, um, I can never say French words or names well, but Marguerite um, will have her, right, the king's sister. Is that it? Mew? That she will have this kind of circle of um, of humanists that she will gather around her. Um, and Francis himself will be pretty open to humanism before he gets... Uh, a little worried that this is too connected to evangelical thought. The uh, um, Francis and France are okay with Protestantism so long as it's a thorn in the flesh of the Habsburgs, <clears throat> um, but they don't like it in France, right? Um, but there will be during this time this humanism and this opening uh, openness to evangelical thought, <clears throat> and so Calvin will be exposed to uh, these things. Um, he will have access to, to some of the burgeoning thought in this regard. Um, there will be important French thinkers who he will be reading who are open to such things. And at some point, Calvin is going to become, uh, 
a convinced evangelical. And, and maybe, Mike, uh, why don't you explain what we mean when we say evangelical um, at this point mm-hmm. and how that's different than maybe how that gets used today? So uh, even still today, like if you were use the word evangelical in, in Germany, um, that would be a reference. It, it's It's... Of course, there's there's a lot of time that has has passed, and uh, you know, a reformed and Lutheran Lutheranism being being put together um, into one camp. But uh, evangelical would have been the name for the Lutherans, right? Evangelical mean gospel, right? Being being gospelly. Um, the word evangelical then um, today, if I would say evangelical, uh, that generally means a conservative Bible believing Christian. So. Um, <clears throat> that that is a significant change right so uh, are we evangelical i think we would say yes we're evangelical in the sense of being about the gospel um are we evangelical in the sense that we believe that the bible is the inherent word of god yes but along with that baggage then comes often usually some some politics right so if i say evangelical today in a pejorative way i mean mostly i mean arminian theology tied together with a right, right-leaning political thought, right? Mm-hmm. So it's, it's, it's very complicated. Then throw in there, then our own little parochial evangelical means that you're nice. Right. But we, we've discussed that before. Canadian. So, yeah. So um, what you mean by John Calvin becoming evangelical is that he is going to be won over by the Reformation rather yeah. than staying in the Roman Catholic Church. Mm-hmm. Um, so... Uh, as as this takes place, he's going to be finishing up his his education. Um, one of the important works he'll produce will be a, a commentary or a um, overview of uh, Seneca, a famous Stoic, and uh, Calvin's law training and his appreciation for Seneca and Stoicism really will stay with him throughout life. And you can see it pop up um, in both how he handles himself and in how things are somewhat organized. Uh, in Geneva eventually, um, but he'll be shaped then by his legal training, by his work on Seneca and Stoicism, which was very good work, and then evangelical thought. And when I mention Seneca and Stoicism, by the way, uh, that is not a criticism. I think, Mike, you can attest. Uh, I enjoy some good Stoicism. You do. We're, we're, I don't practice it. Yeah, we're we're on the. But uh, I enjoy it. I'm I'm probably a little bit more critical or weary of stoicism than you are and that's why we balance each other out so well <laughs> yeah right and uh that's important yes yes uh, uh, joke joke understood yes yeah. yeah okay we um at some point then in here kelvin has uh his conversion which we've said is really hard to pinpoint when he talks about it he'll talk about what what shifted in his views more than an event um, but at some point, this is going to lead to his flight from France, um, which was becoming uh, increasingly not a very safe place to be a Protestant, right? And here it's maybe helpful to remember that really the right the the first big religious wars, well, I shouldn't say first, but some of the um, longest lasting and most deadly <clears throat> religious wars of the 16th century. Um, will take place in France, right, with the Huguenots. And so um, there's a lot of hostility growing there. There's a growing Protestant community. 
the Huguenots, but there's also growing hostility towards that. Um, Kelvin is perhaps involved in a couple things that makes it wise for him to to, um, to leave as well. Uh, there's going to be a, uh, a scholar, a uh, cop who gives a speech that has evangelical themes that causes a little bit of an uproar. And it's suspected that maybe Kelvin helped with that. But then there's also going to be this placards affair. And to me, the placards affair has just always seemed like bad strategy. Someone's going to put up a bunch of uh, placards uh, within the, the royal facilities, um, even, I believe, outside the king's bedroom. Um, and these placards are going to have, uh, I would say, reformed, not just evangelical, but reformed um, themes. And this is going to be enough to set Francis off. Um, and so it's just going to be wise for Kelvin to be elsewhere. And really for the rest of his life then, um, Kelvin's going to be uh, in exile, right? Um, he'll be in Geneva for a long time. But but Geneva won't be uh, his permanent home. It's not. Um, it's not where he would prefer to be. Right? He would have loved to have gone back and ministered in, in France, as far as uh, where he would have seen himself earlier on. But he's it's where he's going to have to be. And even when there's opportunities in France, he's going to have to send others like his um, great mentee, who will take over for him later, uh, Theodore Batesa. Um, will have to go do work in France because it would have been extremely uh, difficult for Kelvin. And so this this fact that he's in exile, that he's living elsewhere for the rest of his life, will also be something that marks Kelvin's theology, um, this pilgrimage emphasis. And you can see this um, in a lot of Reformed theology subsequently, uh, imagery of being a pilgrim or a stranger um, will play out, right, uh, in... in um, and how people view uh, the place of the Christian in the world and over against the world. And so Calvin's going to find himself several places. I don't know, Mike, um, before I jump into that, if you have anything that is coming to mind. Sure. So he's going to end up in uh, uh, Geneva twice, really. and then uh, He messes up the first time. Yeah, and then uh, in Strasbourg. Um, and we have this guy, William Farrell. I don't know if that's how you pronounce it. Or I, I always like to say Will Farrell. Will Farrell. Um, like, he, like stepbrothers. Yeah. Tailgate nights. Um, <laughs> do you have like a picture of Will Ferrell when you talk about? I, I John sometimes Calvin? show a clip. You should. Yeah. Um, sweet baby Jesus, that kind of stuff. Because they're, they're kind of like um, Ricky Bobby and Cal Norton Jr. <laughs> um, in Geneva the first time. Yeah. yeah. So there is the this shaking and bacon. Yeah. So uh, uh, the the story goes that. Uh, John Calvin was uh, just going to spend the night in Geneva on his his way out of uh, get, getting out of Dodge there, and uh, uh, Will Farrell's like, "Hey, you need to stay. Um, we 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 really dig what you're saying. You need to stay, and we need we could we could change Geneva." And um, uh, he doesn't want to stay, and then Will Farrell like puts it on him, mm -hmm. right? Like like God's calling you. To God's do calling this. you here, and like really guilts him and uh you know this is this is calvin's moved by this and uh eventually stays uh there for well i can't remember if this is the first time in geneva or second time in geneva i'm, I'm getting confused and i apologize the for first that. time in geneva ends when 
they make an innocent pastoral mistake and they execute excommunicate the whole city on Easter. Yeah. But which we've all been there. But this is Will Farrell saying, "Hey, you need to come to Geneva. You need to race. You right. need to he race. Needs, yep, we got to shake and race. bake. You got to shake and bake. Geneva. That's the first time he goes to Geneva. Yep. Then there's some problems. Second time Strasbourg, he comes back is like El Diablo, and he comes back, and he comes Which back. Which means like a, a yeah. fighting chicken. And then he's going to he's going to set up quite 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 a few. He's going to set set up an ecclesiastical structure and a structure that is going to really be secular in a certain way. Even though I think he kind of would like to theoretically maintain a, a somewhat of a difference between the ecclesiastical and secular secular rule. So. Um, he is uh, then going to spend in between these two times in Geneva. He's going to spend this time in Strasbourg, which will be probably the most important years of his yeah. life. Yeah. So um, we can go two different directions right now, or maybe three. One is like, what does it look like in Geneva that he's set up? The other one is what was his writings, and maybe a third way uh, to go forward to be like, what are the key theological themes of John Calvin? Yeah. What so can I like? hit first on just his first go in Geneva, yep. just briefly? Then maybe we can go Strasbourg writings, wherever sure. you like that. Um, Geneva itself, we have to understand, most of these Swiss cities had unique governance compared to um, much of the rest of Europe. Uh, right there, part of this, um, uh, Zurich, for instance, <clears throat> Baron Basel, a part of the Swiss Confederation. Um, and Strasbourg, by the way, is a free city. Right. And you're gonna so you're gonna have local families that will play very important roles on the councils. Um, there's a small and large council in Zurich. I'm trying to remember what we have in Geneva, but I think we have like the Paranus is one group or whatever, but um, one family. And so you you have kind of these shifts that take place based on who's won elections or who's gained the most influence at a set time. And Calvin and Farrell are gonna set themselves to work this first time in Geneva. Um, you know, whole hog as best they can. But their fortunes, as far as the support they're going to have from city leaders is going to kind of shift. And then they're going to do this thing um, at Easter where they, um, because they don't think things are proceeding as they should, um, because uh, the the, uh, Calvin and Farrell were told to do things they, that they didn't want to do, namely, um, I believe, use unleavened bread in the Lord's Supper, they, uh, they're they not going to give communion on Easter. And Mike, maybe you can explain this a little bit. A, um, this causes uh, protests, or uh, some say rioting, which is usually not what you want on Easter. I mean, that was one of my goals always on Easter is let's not have a riot in church. Right, I mean, let's have a riot like a a, a fun resurrection time. Yeah, but I mean, not like a riot like like if you fighting if you get a riot, it's going to be Reformation Day. Right, that'd be um, you know, I probably think of like a couple other like Pentecost. Pentecost is a little riotous. Um, you know, if in the reaction, innocent of the you know the the slaughter of the holy innocents, mm-hmm. that would be a good one. Um, you know, there's. There's quite a few days in the church year where you would want to riot before Easter. Yeah. yeah. And so what they, I joke that they excommunicated the city, but what they essentially did is excommunicate the city in that because they were mad at this council's orders um, regarding how the service should be celebrated, they refused to give the sacrament on Easter. 
and you can correct me if I'm wrong, Michael, or you can take over here, but um, we're used to getting communion now regularly. Mm-hmm. Um, and Roman Catholics today receive communion much more regularly than they would in the past. Now, it it's not that it's offered more by Roman Catholics necessarily. There was always in the Mass the Lord's Supper. Mm-hmm. Um, well, I should say, depending on what we mean by offered. Um, but participation was much lower amongst the laity. Mm-hmm. Um Ironically, among Lutherans, the sacraments probably offered less than it was early on now, although yeah. it's getting better. Yeah. Right? I think yeah. most of our churches are to like at least twice a month, yeah. and some of ours have gotten to, <clears throat> to every week. But what was the big deal with Eastern Communion at this point, Michael? Well, um, so for, I don't know exactly where you want me to go, but there, there was this idea, and I want to say Fourth Lateran Council, where they said, you really ought to go four times a year, and include one of those would naturally Easter was be a Easter. Big day. That's what I was getting at. And so Luther Luther uh, says offhandedly, like unless you go four times a year, I don't even think you're a Christian. And through the Reformed, and then even all the way up into my own ministry, you had people who had twisted that to say the exact opposite: that you only go four times a year. So Calvin only offered it four times a year. So. But but you think about this as an ordinance, not really a sacrament, so it makes sense in that theology. And you go. You know, this is not like it's offered, you come when you when you when you're there, when when you know, a true Adi offering where you, you go, it's offered, you have the freedom to go or not. We're not gonna take away the freedom from you by not offering it from in a backwards way. Like we have it, you go. And so then it was like four times a year, right? So the so for them not to have Holy Communion on Easter would have been breaking a pretty established tradition, right? And uh, when you change things, whether either for good or ill, mm-hmm. you are going to have people that are going to be very upset. Yeah, and there would be a lot of devotional practices associated with Easter and with people being ready to commune for Easter. <clears throat> and so this is a a big day to do a big thing. And they're going to get asked to leave. Mm-hmm. Um, and so Calvin will go, and he'll go to Strasbourg, um, which will be, I think, his most important years. A city where you have um, someone like a Martin Bootser, who's very important, um, in southwest Germany at that time, uh, now because of some 20th century misunderstandings. Uh, it's in France, mm-hmm. yes, Michael. You, <clears throat> this is a city you've been mm-hmm. to. And... Uh, um, you have personalities like Bootser, Wolfgang Capito, and others who want to themselves be a bridge between Wittenberg mm-hmm. and and especially Zurich at this point, um, because and, they're and located this, between these places. And John Calvin is, you know, like you said, a, a second generation, but Bootser is closer to Luther. Right, yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. Um, Bootser actually is one for the Reformation when Luther presents his Heidelberg mm-hmm. um, theses. Uh, Bootser tells about how, how he felt when these were presented. <clears throat> and so... Um, Calvin's going to learn to be a churchman here. He's going to have time to really think and write. He's already begun his institutes, but he's going to be able to work on them more. Yes, let me, let me jump in right there. Yep. Latin, published 1536. In French, I believe 1541. So he's working on it in these Strasbourg years, and I believe this is when he does his... That's in French, too, I think. I think I have that right, but yeah, to your point. Uh, that, no, that sounds right yeah. in... Um, so he's gonna he's gonna be able to be productive academically, theologically here, and he's gonna be able to be 
in kind of both orbits, the um, the Swiss orbit and then the Wittenberg Reformation orbit. And he's able to to drink in ideas, and he's also able to sit in on some conversations and to learn how to um, try to broker agreement where um, it appears maybe there can't be some. And he really becomes convinced then that this is his role. Um, he ha- He adopts a view of the sacrament, which probably is also influenced by Bootser, who was responsible for the Wittenberg Concord, which I don't know that we've talked about. We did, yeah. Um, that uh, Calvin really does believe something's happening there, right? He even believes there's a type of presence, um, but he can't bring himself to go as far as Luther with a real presence. Uh, the way that Lutherans would kind of smoke out a Calvinist on the Lord's Supper later the way they learn to tell the difference is with the Mandicatio Impiorum. What does the unbeliever receive? <clears throat> and the Calvinist had to say the unbeliever receives just bread and wine. And this is simplistic, but um, because it's faith, right, which ascends to heaven and then partakes of the presence of Christ in the Lord's Supper in Calvin's view. Whereas the Lutheran believes, believer and unbeliever receive bread and wine, body and blood, but the unbeliever receives it for what, Michael? Damnation. Yeah, condemnation, condemnation, judgment, damnation. You should say condemnation. Which is why, um, why we practice close communion. You don't want to just give anybody and everybody mm-hmm. the sacrament if they don't know what they're receiving. Uh, his his views on um, election or predestination will go further than Luther and bondage of the will to double predestination. But I think that's another area where you can see. Um, him wanting to be a bridge or, or drawing on Luther's thoughts that led him further probably than he imagined at first. Uh, but Kelvin in Strasbourg really gets a sense for what it is to be a theologian among theologians um, and how to sit in on these convocations and other things to try to, uh, to build a network, to build relationships that would serve him for the rest of his ministry. Now he's going to get invited back to Geneva um, they're going to realize, okay, they need Calvin. They need someone who can organize reform there. He'll be welcomed back. He's going to set up how the church is structured. He's going to set up how things function. Um, he's going to set up what worship looks like. And uh, Calvin, of all the reformers, will probably be the one who has his fingers in the most. Um, and he proves himself to be a capable, capable administrator as well as uh, theologian. And really a lawyer, too, right? He got his licentiate in law, mm-hmm. um, which is, I believe, what he wrote on Seneca for or in relation to. Uh, he's probably the then the one who's got his fingers in the most. Luther will write like a treatise on something, mm-hmm. and Luther will be consulted on certain decisions, um, but he's not nearly as involved. And Zwingli, too, I think Gordon's book does a good job. Zwingli is consulted and involved sometimes, too, but not nearly to the extent yep. that Calvin will be, too. So. What would it look like in Geneva? Well, you'd have a consistory, which would would be basically your secular type type government. Within the church, you would have uh, doctors, pastors, deacons, and elders, and the doctors would teach throughout the week um, on scripture. Which is what doctor? Sometimes people forget that because we think of doctor, medical doctors, yeah. but really, doctor originally meant teacher. Teacher. Uh, pastors are going to be the ones who administer uh, and preside. You know, weddings, funerals. Uh, Holy Communion, baptism, stuff like that. And John Calvin's going to do some of that, even though he doesn't really 
get ordained in the, the traditional sense. Deacons are going to be like what the deacons were in the New Testament. Uh, they're going to wait tables, right? They're going right. to take care of some of the administration stuff, but taking care of the poor, stuff like that. And then the elders were going to be the ones who are going to deal with church discipline. And maybe just to hit there, Calvin was very serious about taking care of the poor, and uh, as was Luther with the common chest, but... Um, Calvin and Geneva sometimes get a bad rap today because they're viewed as like, oh, see, this is this oppressive morality plea, stuff like that. Um, there was a lot that today would be considered progressive in the measures they wanted to take um, to take care of those on the margins of society. So he, you know, uh, But they did also burn Servetus. <laughs> John Calvin doesn't really fit neatly into any of those and mm-hmm. has his finger in all of them. Certainly a teacher going to do some administration work uh, or administration, pastoral administration work, like doing weddings and stuff like that. But then he's consulted the consistory too. So there is a separation of what we would call church and state here. But again, separation of church and state in America is a completely different thing than what a concept would have been in 16th century Europe, where those things are in, intertwined. Everybody's Christian, right? Mm-hmm. And so um, it's a matter of, of, of of who has the final authority, who gets to consult who, that kind of thing. So Calvin's really, he's got his fingers into all of that and maybe even gets burned out a little bit, mm-hmm. I mean, at the end, so. Yeah, and so um, Geneva probably becomes the most important model as far as influence it has later. Not that I'm saying it should be what um, people strove for, but the most important model for what a uh, reformed city culturally, um, economically, ecclesiastically look like. Mm-hmm. Um, John Knox is going to want this in Scotland. He's going to call it the perfect school of Christ. Um, you're going to have influences that it will have in England. Obviously, right, the Puritans who come to America will be very influenced by this. Um, you'll see it in the Netherlands at times. Uh, and Calvin's going to be very involved in exporting this, right, and encouraging um, pe- as Geneva gets a bunch of religious refugees, he's going to encourage them to uh, to eventually go back, right, and to establish um, similar things where they were, were from, as will Bullinger in, in Zurich. Um, but the interesting thing to me about Calvinism is that it it probably comes up I'm guessing it's on the on the radar of like two percent of the average Lutherans in the pew mm-hmm. John Calvin and Calvinism <clears throat> yet as far as its influence on the West and on America especially America via England um, probably the most influential stream of the Reformation of all of them. You can correct me if you think I'm wrong. Sure, no, absolutely. Especially early America, so just maybe it's been helpful to me. Like, okay, all these denominations, especially in early America, you have Congregationalists, you have Presbyterians, you have Baptists, you have Episcopalians, the Church of England, some Lutherans, Roman Catholic. Think of the Reformed as um, Congregationalists, Presbyterians, and and largely Episcopalians, and those three words, by the way, have to do with their church structure. The Congregationalists is more egalitarian. Presbyter just means elders are in charge. Mm-hmm. Episcopal means actually bishops are in charge. And so the theology certainly is going to, as these groups separate, is going gonna, is gonna, to you know, 
separate as well, but generally they're all reformed. So you're talking about, along with the Puritans, you're talking some pretty historians fighting out there. Is that the you have you have some pretty influential groups at the founding of the United States that are going to be what we call Calvinist. It's not really until you start getting into the second great awakening that you see a much more influence on maybe an, a more Arminian string. It's not like there wasn't Baptists who we would, we would argue are, are more Arminian than reformed. It's not like there weren't Lutherans. It's not like there weren't other, but I, I think very early on historically you're leaning more theologically and therefore um, politically in a lot of different ways reformed rather than you rather than today where it would be um, you know you definitely have a evangelical voting block yeah and you have maybe a, a Catholic uh, progressive Catholic block but then you have uh, you have conservative Catholics actually aligning themselves now with evangelicals in a lot of different ways I mean obviously it gets more complicated than that but uh, uh, Certainly John Calvin is, well, the other thing about John Calvin and his influence is his, his institutes of the, of the Christian religion is a tightly woven uh, systematic accounting of theology where, you know, if we would say what's our, you know, you could go to Chemnitz, you could go to other ones, but there, it's not like there's a, a standard of Luther. There's a standard of Calvin. Right. It's large but it ain't the volumes of Luther, right? Yeah. Um, and, and then he wrote quite a few commentaries and, and, and the alike, and so a catechism too. So you, you really do have um, not only his fingers in the, in the political theory, but also just his, his writing lends itself to be something that's didactic for generations yeah. to come. And there's, um, right, a lot more emphasis on rational explanations for things. And I don't mean by that um, in a way that's meant to dismiss the scriptures, but almost, you know, like, like the scholastics before, mm -hmm. you know, that, that you're going to systemize these things, that they are going to be comprehensible. They're going to fit with reason, which is why double predestination, right, is going to mm -hmm. be an emphasis. Um, there's things that will be really attractive to people still today um, precisely because, and I would guess in apologetics, but just in dealing with culture as well, there's a cohesiveness there, mm -hmm. um, and I believe right. It's mostly reform, the reform that would use presuppositionalism, right, mm. as as a form of apologetics, Largely, yeah. which it makes sense it would come from that. But if we think of things in America like the you know of old, the shining city on a hill, mm -hmm. um, the moral majority, or the idea of a this political, um, politically active, we're going to reform. You know, we're a Christian. Emphasis on us as a Christian mm -hmm. nation. Um, the uh, Christian coalition, <clears throat> um, even to some degree, maybe American exceptionalism, uh, you know, a lot of these things are not, Calvin didn't say like this, but they're influenced by reform themes. Um, even the the account, right, of the pilgrims coming and mm. many of the pilgrims went back, by the way. <laughs> um, but something new, a fresh start, we can do this right. A chosen people. Yep. Um, this will be very important in America. Uh, Calvin is going to have kind of a, like most of the reformers, a kind of sad end of his life. Um, he's going to see the difficulties in France and not be able to do a lot about it other than write and welcome refugees, which um, Geneva was not always thrilled about. Uh, believe it or not, at some times in history, people don't like refugees. were not very welcoming to outsiders. 
uh, he, um, his health, uh, will be like Luther's kind of at the end of life, probably because of how hard he worked himself. Um, obviously he'll lose loved ones or friends and, uh, and yet he'll leave this legacy, um, of, uh, a conscientious desire for unity among Protestants. Now, to achieve what he could, he had to move more. Uh, he, had, he had to move closer to Zurich and Basel. And um, this is why capital R reformed becomes more of a thing. He's able to work with Bullinger. They can kind of have some compromise formulas. And so the other thing, ironically then, will be that Calvinism, while uniting many Protestants, will exacerbate um, divisions in Lutheranism uh, because Calvinism will have influence in some Lutheran territories and churches, or territories and churches, even in Wittenberg, where you'll have the crypto-Calvinist controversy. <clears throat> we have people who were hiding their agreement with Calvin on certain things, and disagreement with Luther, who had long since died at this point. Um, uh, the reason Lutherans, for instance, kneel for communion in many places, is because there were attempts to force um, a Union Church in Germany. Um, by a reformed or Calvinist um, um, prince, <clears throat> and the Lutherans who recognized the real presence um, of Christ in the sacrament uh, knelt in protest. This is actually one of the things that's going to lead to Paul Gerhardt, um, I would say the greatest hymn writer in the Lutheran tradition, um, to lose his parish, the, the Nikolai Kirke, I believe, Berlin, in yeah. Berlin, and have to go to Leben, um, so this, um, while Calvin sought unity, um, and, and this is not to put it all just on Calvin, um, but Lutherans will recognize, in some ways, this is close enough to be more dangerous yep, yep. than Zwinglianism, where you could you could draw the lines. Yep. Luther, by the end of his life, seems to have lumped Calvin in with the sacramentarians. Mm -hmm. um, Calvin writes to, to Luther through Melanchthon, and Melanchthon doesn't even give it to Luther because he thinks Luther will do something that Melanchthon <laughs> will then have to apologize for. Um, but I think that's kind of the, the tension that comes out of Calvin's work in, in, in ministry. Yeah, maybe just one thing you brought up, apologetics, the, the sense of the divine. I, I'm not an expert on this, but uh, that, you know, I, I can know God. Um, <clears throat> a little bit outside of the word, I can know that there is a God, which we, we would argue, certainly you can come to the conclusion that there is that there is a God from, from natural law. Um, you know, it's, it's a little, I don't know where I always stand on that. Um, but uh, that, that then leaves to a sense that God zaps you knowledge mm -hmm. sort of thing. Um, and some reform f f philosophers uh, in the apologetic world, but just in philosophy in general will lead towards that. Like you, you, you um, automatically know that there's a God because God has given you that knowledge somehow, some way. And it gets a little tricky there, but um, that's a little bit different than, than maybe we would put it sometimes. So there, there are quite a few still, philosophical things going on in the academy today that you can trace back to uh, reform in influence a lot of it good some of it bad right um, we would argue that reform is as close as you can get to to lutheranism and yet some of the some of the major uh differences are so big that they are you know they can be like you said so close and yet so far away right um sovereignty of god versus 
versus a, a the grace or mercy of grace and, and, and seeing Christ as we, we talk about this being a first article Christian or a second article Christian kind yeah, of thing. Sacramental so, theology. Yeah. So anyway, um, I thought that was a good episode. You got to teach class, don't you? Yeah. yeah I'm going to so, quick pull this and then, yeah. and then go teach if that's all right. All right Mike. Yeah, absolutely. So, uh, nice talking with you. Yeah. You as well. And, uh, you know, people, uh, let the bird fly and stuff. Another round, another round, one more round won't get me down.